Hello and welcome. I'm Ben Schultz. I'm Nora Schultz. And you're listening to Trying to Adapt, and today we're trying to adapt to La Esmeralda, an opera from 1836 with music by Louise Bertin and libretto by Victor Hugo. Now you might be wondering, if this is an opera which was written by the same person who wrote the original book, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, of course, and it was only written six years after the book was originally published, that you would think that it would probably be very similar to the original book, and oh boy, it is not. Oh boy, it's not. I mean, right off the bat, obviously, you don't normally get an adaptation from the person who wrote the original work. That's not, like, a super common thing. I mean, in the days of, like, now, like, popular books get movie adaptations and the author might have some insight, but, like, you don't often get the author of a book actually writing the words to an adaptation. Um, with a little historical background on this opera, the book was a big hit in France, and almost immediately there were several notable composers who wanted to turn his book into an opera. However, it's thought that he accepted it's thought that he accepted Bertin's because they were sort of family friends. Just looking at the title of this adaptation, it's interesting that already we see the focus of the story becoming the human drama instead of the cathedral. There's no longer this, like, double entendre about, like, oh, Our Lady of Paris refers to both the church and Esmeralda, who is the focal point of the drama. No, it's just Esmeralda at this point. Right, and it's not even, as the English translation, as most of the adaptations go, it's not even the hunchback of Notre Dame. The focus here is placed squarely on the Esmeralda, La Esmeralda. And I have to point out, La Esmeralda literally translates to the Emerald. So if anyone wants to make, like, a super disconnected adaptation where, like, it turns into a heist movie. I really like that idea. So there were a number of factors, other than just the fact that singing operatically about the finer points of the cathedral would probably not be most people's idea of a good time. It's my idea of a good time. And probably Victor Hugo's too. But, you know, he's thinking about making money. But also, because he sort of accepted this proposal as a courtesy to Bertine, um, she personally wanted to change the ending. She didn't like that Esmeralda dies at the end. Her influence, as well as almost immediately after the book was published, due to its popularity, the Catholic Church was pretty pissed about it. Um, the Catholic Church had a, like, known list of, like, banned books that you, like... Right up until Vatican II. That they frowned upon. And Hunchback was on this list. And this wasn't this didn't necessarily mean that Hunchback couldn't be published, of course. But it did mean that further adaptations are going to frequently ignore that Frollo is a priest. In this version, he still is. Um, the Catholic Church wanted, at the time, the actors to remove all reference to the word priest. They often didn't. They would claim that they just kind of forgot what words they were supposed to <laughs> leave out. <laughs> Obviously, now that the Catholic Church is not going to get on people's cases about it, this recording is from 2008, so... Frollo is still a priest in this version, but we will see that influence in adaptations to come. Yes, so as Nora just pointed out, we were listening to an opera from 1836, but we were listening to a recording of it from 2008, and they made a surprising number of changes. We were looking at, like, the original French libretto and my very hasty translation of it. 
trying to, like, follow what was going on in the recording we were listening to, and there were, like, a significant number of changes that made it, like, very difficult to actually follow, like, one line to the next. They'll repeat things, they'll take things out, maybe even add some things in. This is, you can think of the recording that we listened to as an adaptation of an adaptation. And this sort of, like, liberal playing around with the original opera probably wouldn't be as common if this were a more revered work. Pretty much everybody was upset with this opera when it came out. Even Victor Hugo himself, because he wasn't really involved in the actual production, when he saw um, the set and the costumes, um, he remarked on how the costumes of the beggars looked like too fancy and new and kind of obscured the points he was trying to make about social class. The full score, the full original score, was never actually published due to, it was, it was critically panned. People were not fans of the family of the composer. Supposedly, even the author Dumas got involved in some, like, heckling at one of the performances because people claimed that the composer herself hadn't written some parts of it. Um, it overall was just not... People were pissed. Almost everybody was pissed. And for that matter, you know, a lot of the changes that were made from the original book into this opera, there were a lot of changes, as I said earlier, a lot more than maybe you would expect from something made by the original author of the book. Victor Hugo himself basically said, like, if you're looking for a faithful adaptation, you're not going to find one anywhere because different mediums require different ideas and different stories. And that justification didn't really alleviate people's concerns about the fact that the opera was perhaps not very good. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard for us to judge it musically because I'm not an expert of 19th century opera. I haven't listened to much at all. So, I mean, I enjoy the music. I mean, it's pretty. It's kind of fun to listen to. But, you know, fans of music at the time thought it was pretty lacking. Fans of the book were disappointed with the changes. People didn't like the composer. Victor Hugo didn't like the set or the costumes. And that was probably a sentiment shared by others. We're looking at an adaptation whose cultural impact was extremely limited because it basically sank into obscurity and was only really rediscovered in about 2002 at the bicentennial of Victor Hugo's birth when people kind of unearthed this thing and that's how we have this like 2008 recording. However, a lot of the changes that we'll be talking about in just a minute, a lot of the changes that take place with the plot and removing characters and stuff, a lot of those changes you see in many other adaptations. So even if this particular work, this opera, was not popular and not successful, it has like a very outsized impact on the way that people try to adapt the story of The Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, going forward even into today. Well, perhaps it reflects, even if this adaptation was not referred to by many people trying to make their own version of this story, it reflects kind of like a common, um, at some point in my notes I referred to this as like Victor Hugo writing a fix-it fic of his own book. But because, I mean, think about it, even the composer, Bertin, who, um, you know, read the book, wanted Victor Hugo to change the ending because 
that disappointed a lot of people. So even if this opera was watched and listened to by very few people, the changes made in it are reflective of what a lot of readers and audiences want to see. Wanted to see at the time, even if this kind of pissed people off, because it just wasn't very good. It is the very start of the public kind of warping the story into more of a feel-good tale of, like, justice going right and redemption and that sort of thing. So with that being said, I think it's time for us to get into the first of many, many adaptations of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. We start off directly with uh, the beggars in the Court of Miracles who are preparing for the Feast of Fools. And right off the bat, Pierre Gringoire is gone. His mystery play is gone. Palace of Justice, gone. I mean, it's probably still there, but... Right. I mean, the Feast of the Epiphany is just, like, not really recognized here at all. It, It is the Feast of Fools, it's the beggars, and Quasimodo. And it's interesting to me that, like, at least in the book, the scene where Frollo is watching Esmeralda, you know, like, he's he's there for the act. It's unclear at the beginning, Frollo's just kind of, like, hanging around the Court of Miracles. This never really becomes clear exactly what his relationship is with, like, anyone in this story. So Esmeralda basically comes home to the Court of Miracles while they're preparing for the Feast of Fools, and she sings her, she gets her solo about how she she looks happy and she smiles and she dances in this way that everybody enjoys, but on the inside, you know, she's really miserable. I saw that in the libretto, but I didn't actually hear it in the score. Yeah, the recording that we listened to, that part just got cut. Very few characters in this actually get, like, proper introductions. Like, Esmeralda's supposed to have one. We don't really hear it here. But, like, Quasimodo, for example, just kind of shows up and starts going, like, yes, master to Frollo. You know, like, we're not told that he's, like, a bell ringer or, you know, what his hobbies are. We get that later in the story, but this is an interesting thing to just kind of gloss over at the beginning. Another person who refers to Frollo as my master and my lord is... Clopin, the king of the beggars, which is very interesting because they have basically no relationship whatsoever in the book. Yeah, I want. I will say I made a note that this is, I haven't seen many Hunchback adaptations so far. I haven't seen the Disney movie. I hate to admit it, but I have read fan fiction of the Disney movie. I find it really funny. And this is the first time that I've seen any one-on-one interaction between Clopin and Frollo outside of, like, fan fictions where he, like, arrests him and they're being super kinky. So. We are definitely going to do a couple episodes on fan fiction. Because it's an adaptation. It's an adaptation. Yeah, we didn't get around to it with A Christmas Carol, but hopefully some years from now we'll be able to look at, like, uh... Anyways, I Frollo here is kind of in the book again like he's a priest also is an alchemist here he's just kind of like a magician (laughs) he's his master in magic i also find it kind of interesting that like i guess they decided um oh frollo still needs like a student we took out pierre grigoire so now clopet is gonna be his student and instead of being his student in like latin and greek no now he's just his student in magic but he's still a priest and Clopin is also his student in trying to abduct Esmeralda. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, 
a bit of a homoerotic moment where, like, Frollo is just kind of going on about how horny he is, and he doesn't specify he's talking about Esmeralda. Clopin starts responding with stuff like, may I serve you? Which, like, you know, we know that he's talking about, like, can I help you get Esmeralda? But the fact that Frollo's talking about how much he hates having a boner, and Clopin's first response is to be like, can I help you? Definitely seems like he's offering to, like, give him a quickie. So because Esmeralda's first scene gets cut from the recording that we listened to, the first time that we actually meet Esmeralda in this opera is 26 minutes in. Despite the fact that she's the titular character, it is while she is being abducted. Quasimodo and Frollo meet up to abduct Esmeralda. There's a line that I really liked where Quasimodo basically says, Master, take my blood without telling me why. And this was in response to Frollo talking about how he wants to abduct Esmeralda. And, like, this can be interpreted... Personally, I think the simplest or most fun interpretation of this line is that he's just telling him to shut up. But I think it's also partly, like, it's a very sad line. He's basically saying he'd do anything for him without even knowing the reason. With Clopin's help, Frollo and Quasimodo try to abduct Esmeralda. They get caught. Phoebus is a member of the Night Guard and comes swoops in to save her. And unlike in the book, where Esmeralda runs off after Phoebus saves her, uh, this time she actually sticks around in order to basically get to know Phoebus and obviously fall in love with him right away. And in a major difference from the book... Uh, he seems to actually really care about her as well. Yeah, I mean, like, at first, Phoebus is kind of singing, like, how she, well, she's singing about how much she's in love, Phoebus is singing about how soldiers get around, but then he, like, he has this, like, really pretty scarf for some reason. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not judging, but he gives Esmeralda this scarf that we later learned was given to him by Fleur de Lis. So, like, they've literally just met I like to imagine that during this scene, they're, like, currently riding on a horse. And Phoebus, like, keeps, like, almost running into things, but... In this version, the whole thing with the sack lady, who secretly turns out to be Esmeralda's mother, is cut. So I can only assume that in this version, Esmeralda is, like, actually Romani, and not just, like, a child that the gypsies stole. I sure hope it does. We can see this a little bit in the fact that, like, in addition to being called a gypsy, people refer to her as an Egyptian, which I guess is, like, the long version of gypsy, or a bohemian, or in one case, like, Phoebus is talking to her on on horseback here in this scene, and he refers to her as my beautiful African. I like that Esmeralda gets more, like, interesting things to say in this version, because the focus is on her. So instead of just kind of, like, she comments on her situation right before she leaves Phoebus. Um, she basically comments on how, like, if they have this affair, if he takes her virginity, you know, it means nothing for him, but everything for her. Like, that she has every could lose so much from this arrangement. Whereas Phoebus can get away with much more. I like that, like, that acknowledgement of Phoebus's privilege, Woke King. The Woke King is Victor Hugo, I guess. But right after that, I don't know why I find this so funny. But, like, Phoebus comments on how, like, Esmeralda's gone and now I'm just left with Quasimodo. <laughs> because I like the idea that, like, the relationships are comparable, you know? Like, Phoebus is like, well, I gotta be horny for somebody. <laughs> Now Esmeralda's gone, so... Uh, I mean, I guess. 
Um, the stage direction in the libretto too says that he goes out with Quasimodo. <laughs> I think so, I think I might have just fucked up the translation a little bit there. Probably a better translation would be leaves with Quasimodo, but I like goes out with Quasimodo. <laughs> I hope it goes out with Quasimodo because I wish the block. We'll we'll be looking for that in future adaptations. <laughs> One thing that. Um, makes me very angry at the townspeople in this adaptation. I mean, obviously, they're awful towards Quasimodo. But in this one, they directly refer to him as it. Again, I think that might just be the fact that I ran it through Google Translate, because, like, in French, pronouns are basically, like, interchangeable. Okay, if they really were saying it, though, I would slaughter them. It's my fucking son. One thing I commented on repeatedly is that, like, the music often is just not quite fitting with, like, the mood of what's happening, you know? Like, here Quasimodo's getting tortured, and yet, like, the music sounds so, like, frilly and happy, and, I mean, obviously the townspeople are getting a kick out of this, but, like, especially because the lyrics are in French, and so I wasn't listening for comprehension, a lot of the times it feels like the music just, like, could go with anything. Like, any plot. I have a sneaking suspicion that the music was written first, and Victor Hugo was basically tasked with finding a way to make his story fit into the rhythm that Louise Bertin came up with. That sounds about right, because there are, like, some very dramatic lines that are then, like, either immediately followed or immediately preceded by very happy-sounding music, and it, like, it's a little bit dissonant. The other possible interpretation is that Louise Bertin just had no fucking idea what she was doing, which I guess is possible. Who knows? And I mean, obviously it was critically panned, so that might have just been like a legitimate issue with the opera. I like here, again, like this might be a translation issue, but I don't really have anything else to go off of here. I like that Quasimodo just yells a drink. Like he's not yelling for water, you know, it's like cheers. Yeah, yeah. A toast. That one I think is not a translation issue. That's just the fact that people don't really call out O in French. If you're calling for water, you're just going to say a drink. But I, I, I noticed the fact that he says a drink because it makes me think like, you know, he just spent like the last two hours getting whipped. Maybe he just wants to get <laughs> fucked up. Yeah, I just wrote, cheers, Quasimodo. Um, I also really like the line from the townspeople, leave Quasimodo as a direction for Esmeralda. We don't give water. (laughs) As if they're saying, like, silly Esmeralda, you should know, like, the code by this point. When a hunchback is yelling to give him water, we don't do that. Yeah, they, the townspeople refer to Quasimodo as a demon. They call him Beelzebub, which is honestly pretty cool. That's a cool nickname. I'd take that. A little bit later, we get the same scene from the book where Esmeralda's performing out in the square and Phoebus and his fiancée Fleur de Lis are watching from above. And Phoebus, you know, because he's obviously cheating on Fleur de Lis with her, when they start talking about Esmeralda, he's like, oh, I, I don't know. It, maybe that is the person I saved from Quasimodo. I like that this adaptation, like, explicitly tells us that Fleur, like, knows that Phoebus is cheating on her, and she's upset about it. Oh, yeah. There's this whole thing where Fleur de Lis and Phoebus are arguing, and he's like, I swear, I love you. And she says, don't swear. We only swear when we lie. And in this case, she is completely right, because when Esmeralda comes up to do a little private performance in Fleur de Lis's house, 
Uh, Fleur de Lis notices that the very nice scarf she made for Phoebus is hanging around her neck, and she immediately figures out exactly why that Phoebus has been cheating on her. Yeah, I like that in the book, you know, like, Fleur de Lis doesn't seem like she really has a clue. Even when, like, Jolly comes and, like, spells out Phoebus with her hooves, like, she's like, that's a little weird, but... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, no goat in this version, because, I mean, obviously, you're not gonna have a goat on the stage. Though, keep in mind that Jolly was a very smart goat. If we could get Jolly on stage, she'd know what to do. So, of course, because this adaptation is trying to tell a... I wouldn't say a feel-good story, because, well, you'll see. But Phoebus here is much more of a romantic protagonist. So he has all these asides about how he can't stop thinking about how wonderful Esmeralda is. And now that Fleur de Lis and Phoebus have broken up over this, Phoebus is now free to, like, openly go out with Esmeralda which leads to a whole bunch of scenes where everybody Phoebus knows is like, you can't date her, she's a gypsy. And he's like, hey, what does it matter if she's a gypsy or even perhaps Jewish? He's like woke <laughs> by 15th century standards. Yeah, woke King Phoebus. <laughs> we'll see a lot of woke King Phoebuses, I think, from now on. With my limited knowledge of Hunchback adaptations, I feel like that'll probably be a common thread, or at least someone being a woke king. So here we get our first appearance of Woke King Phoebus. I I like how this scene gets really dramatized from the book. Like, this is a pretty forgettable scene from the book where basically what happens is Esmeralda feels really awkward because the girls, like, kind of stare at her and, like, point and laugh, and so she leaves. <laughs> like, no one tells her she has to go. <laughs> she just kind of, like, well, that was embarrassing, and, get, like, gets out of there. But in this version, like, the entire chorus is yelling at her to go because they, like, of course... Because of double standards, it's not Phoebus's fault that he cheated on Fleur de Lis, it's Esmeralda's fault for being hot. So, they all want her to go because of this scandal. And so, speaking of it's being Esmeralda's fault for being hot, now we get to the point where Frollo basically finds out that Phoebus is in this relationship with her and is trying to hatch a plot to kill him. Now, in the book, what he does is he goes up to Phoebus basically pays him money in order to find a hiding spot and watch while they have sex and then he like bursts out right when they're about to start doing it in order to stab Phoebus. In this version I guess Phoebus is a lot more moral. He's not the kind of person who would like be willing to accept payment in order to let some creepy old guy watch him have sex with his girlfriend. <laughs> Now that I think about it, would 100% be a porn star? Because, like, he is so willing to make bank. If it, Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure, you can totally just, like... Phoebus is an exhibitionist. But so, in this version, Frollo realizes that right off the bat. And so, basically, his plan is to just kind of go up to Phoebus and tell him, like, you can't go out with her. She's a gypsy. Don't you know that the gypsies are always out there trying to kill you? Yeah, Frollo's basically just like, so, you know, Brown people are evil right so like you can't go out with her and Phoebus tells Frollo basically to go back to the insane asylum which like is a great moment like I in this adaptation one thing I really appreciate are like a lot of characters interacting that don't normally like I mean obviously Phoebus and Frollo interact for like two minutes in the book but here like they have a full-blown conversation and Phoebus is like very ready to just tell Frollo off like 
Got him. He fucking got him. So that being over with, Frollo goes to the one person who has connections all over Paris, who also happens to be Frollo's student, and that is Clopin, who shows up with a bunch of guys, uh, and basically they work together to find a hiding spot in the hotel room where Phoebus and Esmeralda are going to spend their night. So there, this is a team effort in this version. I don't, I don't really have much to say about the, like, almost sex scene between Phoebus and Esmeralda. It's pretty much how it happens in the book. Um, and so then, of course, Frollo stabs Phoebus. Um, Esmeralda's in prison. I will admit that I like Esmeralda's, like, solo, where she's just kind of in prison by herself. I thought it was genuinely emotionally affecting. Like I said earlier, like, it's... Our man, Vicky H., is kind of good at writing. The lyrics are often beautiful, and they sound good, and even with our Google Translate, there's some interesting turns of phrase, and... This is a total offhand comment, but, like, Google Translate has improved a lot recently. Oh, yeah. It went surprisingly well. Yeah, but of course, we still have that sort of, like, misogynistic, like, Esmeralda, now her life is completely over, and she wants to die so she can join Phoebus in heaven. Like, she hasn't converted to Christianity as far as we know, but she is, like, very convinced that she will die and go to heaven to meet Phoebus. To be fair, the only people who mention the fact that she's not Christian are people who are super racist, so maybe she is, and everyone just assumes that she isn't. That's fair enough, because it's not like there aren't, like, Christian Romani people. Like, it was not all that uncommon for, um, Romani people to adopt the religion of the area that they settled in, so, like... And I'm pretty sure that most of the time when the townspeople say Christian, they mean white. But still, I mean, in the book, it's pretty clear that she doesn't know a lot about the Christian religion. But here, like, yeah, she's just totally, like, she fully expects that she's going to go to heaven and meet Phoebus, which is kind of nice. But also, I'm pretty sure she's still 16. But then once again, I thought about the fact that I'm 16, and I know a lot of 16-year-olds, and I definitely know people who if their boyfriend died, would probably post shit like this on Instagram. So, like, I can't judge her too hard. So, of course, Frollo shows up and offers her the choice between either she goes out with him or she dies. And because Phoebus is gone, she doesn't, like, have any particular desire to keep living anymore. So, on top of that, he tells her that he loves her, and she responds, he loves me, oh horror of horrors. No, this entire scene has great dialogue. Like, Frollo basically comes in and he's like, are you ready? And she's like, uh, for what? And he's like, ready to die. She says, yes. He says, good. <laughs> also, pretty much right away, his, like, Frollo appears in front of her. Esmeralda says, what is this man? Which is a question I really think we should bring back. Like, instead of saying, who are you? I like the power and the style of what is this man. Of course, we once again get, like, Frollo suddenly caring about his world as well-being, but then immediately, like, rejoining it with, like, well, you know, I mean, you're not suffering as much as me. I might not be in prison or have a boyfriend that just died, but I am very horny. <laughs> Which, of course, is the worst fate of all. Why don't you care about my feelings, Esmeralda? Yeah, you're blue-balling me, Esmeralda. I'm in pain. So, she calls him a monster, 
Um, there's a moment where, like, the kind of, like, the beautiful operatic singing voice goes away, and she basically just kind of starts yelling at him, which I liked a lot. Frollo's whole love reveal, I think, is a lot less, like, I mean, even in the book, I don't think anyone was shocked when they read that, because it's, Victor Hugo is not so good at the, like, sudden twists. <laughs> he foreshadows, I think, even when he's not trying to. Like, since we've known from the very beginning that Frollo, like, really wants to kidnap her, like, we all kind of, we, we've been new, sis. I do like, though, that in this version, even though Esmeralda's still on her whole, like, well, Phoebus is dead, so I might as well die. Esmeralda does, like, she genuinely, she's angry at Claude, and she feels victimized by this situation. Like, she doesn't think what's happening is fair to her, and she verbalizes this. I wrote these lines down, I'm not sure if they happened in this order, but Frollo basically says to Esmeralda, to die is very frightful. And Esmeralda responds, your love makes death beautiful. <laughs> God, that is a good way to turn someone down. <laughs> your love makes death beautiful. Meanwhile, Quasimodo is hanging out on top of the bell tower. He's talking about how it's such a beautiful day and everything except for him is just lovely. Yeah, he literally says, I love except myself, everything here, which I think we've all felt at least once or twice in our lives. So thank you for putting words to that feeling, Quasimodo. What's interesting is that he says that in my soul, I am beautiful. I'm not used to hearing this kind of self-love from this man. So when Frollo returns to the church, obviously distressed, Quasimodo, like, says something to himself about, like, take my days, save his soul, like, talking to God, which, like, he really loves Frollo in this version for, like, no reason, but I'm so sorry, Quasimodo. This version does a lot of characters dirty, but probably nobody as much as Clopin, because he continues to basically just lick Frollo's boots and, like, be his student in magic, whatever the hell that means. The whole scene where Esmeralda has to go to the church and do penance is really weird because I like the inclusion of um, ecclesiastical music where like there's this lawn section where like the church choir is singing, but it's lawn. And I mean, Victor Hugo kind of breaks up his own climax in his book, or at least part of the climax, with the whole lawn section about the king. It's weirder to do this in an opera. It feels like a time filler. Yeah, this is not really, the way that the story's being told here, it's not really a story that needs a B-plot. Yeah, there's no B-plot whatsoever. It's basically just straightforward what happens to Esmeralda, and then there's like a few scenes with Claude Frollo by himself talking to Quasimodo. Um, yeah, Quasimodo appears like twice. <laughs> kind of three times, because then of course he appears for the classic sanctuary moment, which happens really late in this version because the church scene got drawn out. The whole sanctuary thing is a little messed up, and I'm going to explain why. So while all this is going on, Phoebus is healing from his stab wound out in the countryside. But once again, everyone just thinks he's dead. Right. But in this case, he actually does care about Esmeralda, and when he finds out that Esmeralda is going to be hanged for his quote-unquote murder, he rushes to Paris on horseback, despite the fact that he's, like, seriously wounded, and he's, like, reopening the wound with all the activity. But 
so Phoebus shows up right after Quasimodo has brought Esmeralda into Sanctuary. Not only does he find out that, like, doing that was totally unnecessary, because, like, he could have just waited, taken the necessary amount of time to heal up, and then come in, like, a couple days later, and Esmeralda would have still been fine. Obviously, he didn't know that. This is a real moment where you're like, if only they had cell phones back then. So... Yeah, the sanctuary moment leads up to nothing. Quasimodo and Phoebus are simultaneously trying to white knight Esmeralda. <laughs> and it leads to a tragic conclusion because Phoebus reopened his stab wound and then, like, right after coming into the square and announcing that Frollo was actually the one who tried to kill him. And he says, like, here's my killer, which, like, he didn't kill you. That's the thing, is that he, like, almost immediately thereafter just drops dead because of the stab wound that got reopened. Frollo did kill Phoebus, it just took a while. While obviously, like, yeah, in the book it would have been great if Phoebus had intervened and said, one, I'm not dead, two, Esmeralda didn't do it. I mean, yeah, in... This version, as well as, like, pretty much every version, people don't like Frollo. But people also really don't like Esmeralda. And they wanted to punish her for her crime of witchcraft anyway. I honestly feel like this wouldn't change the ending much. Yeah. I genuinely believe that they would probably try to hang Esmeralda anyways. Although, honestly, we don't know for sure that they don't try to hang Esmeralda afterwards. All we know is that the townspeople are like, whoa, this sure is a crazy twist. <laughs> We've also, like, already established that Esmeralda feels that she has nothing to live for without Phoebus. So this really isn't a happy ending in any way because we don't, like, I guess Esmeralda might just, like, jump in the set and try to kill herself. Who even knows? So then the very ending is that, like, Phoebus collapses and Frollo just yells out, Fatality! And everyone else in the crowd says, Fatality. The I like end. to, even though it's not sung this way, I feel like you should imagine it like Mortal Kombat style. I was thinking, like, Liberté, Egalité, Fatality. <laughs> that too. I don't really even know what to say about this adaptation. It... Most of the time felt like a weird fever dream that somebody would have after, like, binge reading the book. Because a lot of the scenes are pulled directly from the book. It makes sense. It's not that far of a stretch from what happens in the book. But it also, like, is somehow at the same time so incredibly alien that it's hard to believe that Victor Hugo even wrote it. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, a lot of changes. Like, forget the stuff about, the, the whole digression stuff about architecture being taken out. Sure, obviously that was going to happen in any adaptation, like, but to remove Pierre Gringoire and Jehan. Yeah, my man Jehan, I was pissed. That's my favorite character. I mean, like, at a certain point, like, you're really just reducing the story to its, like, bare bones and then building something basically unrelated off of them. Yeah, I mean, when you keep in mind that Victor Hugo's entire point for writing this story, he had two goals, make money, and he achieved that through his melodrama, and advocate for the rights of architecture, and that was achieved through his digressions on history and the church. 
So when you take away that second motive, it's just him trying to cash in by writing, like, cheap melodrama. It's like the reality TV equivalent of entertainment in the 1800s. He's not trying to tell a story for any, like, there's no lesson. You can say that, see that even in the way that the story ends so abruptly with Phoebus just dying. It's just supposed to be, like, Oh, what a crazy twist. What a crazy story. I'm going to tell my friends to go and see this crazy opera. There's no moral to be taken. There's no particularly interesting theme that's delved into. It's just melodrama. And Victor Hugo is good at melodrama. It was interesting. It was often entertaining. But when he's just trying to churn out this melodrama it's kind of depressing <laughs> and lifeless and bland this was basically every scene that i found like less interesting in the book made into an opera strung together and made into an opera and then when you combine that with the fact that the music while good often didn't really feel like it fit the story you know the lyrics while good were often just kind of Again, melodramatic. There's really nothing particularly distinguishing or meaningful about this version of the story. Yeah, this is something that we basically had to look at because, obviously, I mean, Victor Hugo himself made it. So that is pretty important right there. And, and it, it also um, is representative of and a very early desire to turn this story into something more palatable. Yeah, I called it a feel-good version earlier. It's not really feel-good because of the tragic ending, but it's definitely more satisfying than Esmeralda just dying senselessly. You know, it's a sad ending. It's a tragedy, but it doesn't have quite the same feeling of, like, it's people are just awful. Like, Phoebus goes from being kind of a philandering jerk to being someone who really actually cares about Esmeralda. And, even and who turns into, like, a real hero of the story. And he dies, and he's a victim of Frollo's evil. But even Frollo, you know, he's going to face consequences. He's probably going to be killed. Thank God. Although, of course, he did die in the book. But he's going to face legal consequences, is what I mean. It's not going to just be Quasimodo pushing him off of the church because he's angry that Esmeralda died. He's going to... Society is getting back at Frollo for what he's done. Rather than the society of the book. The whole point of the book, in my view, is that, you know, people can be awful, but that these beautiful works of art and architecture outlive us and weather our faults. Kind of stole that idea from Lindsay Ellis. Thank you, Queen. But without the architecture, and like we, we'll see in further adaptations that a meaningful story can still emerge without having to focus on architecture. And I kind of touched on that in the first episode. But it's not done here. Because Victor Hugo basically, he takes the architecture out, leaving only the melodrama. And then, instead of trying to tell a story about how like bleak and awful people are... He injects these, like, feel-good elements that there's really no message here that I could interpret. Could you? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know what they were going for, and I can absolutely see why this is an adaptation that was not successful. Well, I think that's basically all that we have to say, so 
Thank you for listening. I've been Ben Schultz. I've been Nora Schultz. And you have been listening to Trying to Adapt. Thank you.